0: Welcome to Andrews, it's wonderful to see us all here this morning Both regulars, both newcomers and those who we haven't seen for quite a while It's wonderful that we can all gather here together as God's family around his word this morning That's what we're doing, so let's pray now, let's commit our time into the Lord with prayer Let's pray (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us by your word Please help us to understand it now And give us humble hearts to receive what you want to teach us about your Son, that we will be growing in our knowledge and our love of him for your glory. Amen. When you came in, you should have received a Bible, and inside that Bible there would have been an outline for the talk on the inside of the service sheet. So please do grab that, but more importantly, do open your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 19-34, to which we'll be looking at together this morning. Now, character references are important, aren't they? When you apply for a job, a company wants to know who you really are. They won't just take your word for it. They want what you say about yourself to be backed up by people who really know you. So you have to give them these character references. The contact details of some friends who really know you. Friends who have known you for a long time. Friends who can testify that you are who you say you are. Last week we started a new series in the Gospel of John and we saw how, in a sense, John is one great big character reference. Just come with me quickly, keep your finger in John chapter 1 and come with me to John chapter 20 and let's just quickly look again at verses 30 to 31 let me just read them John 20 30 and 31 now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name John has written his gospel so that we might believe who Jesus really is and have life through him. Jesus isn't being presented to us um, for gainful employment. No, John shows us who Jesus is because it matters to our eternity. But as John builds up his witness to the person of Jesus, he will bring in other witnesses as well. Uh, One of them we briefly saw last week, as Andrew took us through the prologue, John the Baptist. And in our verses today, John expands on John the Baptist's witness to Jesus. Two Johns. I know it's confusing, uh, as we saw last week. So from now on, when I say John, I mean John the Baptist. And when I talk about uh, John who wrote this gospel, I'll try and make it as clear as possible. Now, John's witness to Jesus starts as a result of a confrontation. And I'm talking about John the Baptist now, you get it? Good, okay. John the Baptist. Come with me to chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So a delegation has been sent to John from the Jewish authorities, and they want to know who he is. Because John's been doing some rather strange things. He's been calling Jews to repent and be baptized. Why is that such a big deal to the Jewish authorities? I mean, baptism was actually nothing new to them. There's plenty of evidence to show that people were baptizing themselves regularly. It was considered a sign of purification, a symbolic way of saying to God, I want to set my life apart for you. I want to be holy. But what John was doing was different. He was baptizing other people. And we know from the other gospels that the message he was preaching was quite strange as well. He would shout to people, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was calling people to turn from their sinful ways. And to show that decision through being baptised in the River Jordan. Because he believed that God was about to fulfil his promises to his people, Israel. God was going to come to his people to judge them by his promised Saviour King, the Messiah. So with water baptisms and the coming of the Messiah in mind, these Jewish envoys find John and they ask him, Who are you? Some of us might be forgiven for thinking that this next section is all going to be about John. After all, that's what the Jews are asking. They're asking, John, who are you? But as we'll see, John insists on taking the attention of himself and putting it onto someone else. He wants the Jews and he wants us to look elsewhere. Let me to verse 20 where we see John's first reply. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John starts by making it clear to the Jews that he is not God's promised Savior for his people. So they go for option two. Maybe he's Elijah. God had promised through the prophet Malachi, In Malachi 4 verse 5, becoming on the screen. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But again, John replies, No, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus will reveal later that John is the promised Elijah, but at this point, John isn't aware of that connection. He refuses to be identified with the coming Elijah. Again, he just doesn't want the focus on him. So the Jews have another go Are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18 18 God had told his people Israel through Moses I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him so was John the prophet that Moses had promised again John's answer is no now at this point the Jews are getting a little bit worried three questions down they still have no idea who John is. And they had these big chiefs back in Jerusalem who were very concerned to know who John was. So they plead with him. Verse 22. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So John finally hints at his identity. But he does it in a way that still shifts the focus away from him. Verse 23. He said... I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John says to them, you need your bosses to understand who I am. Well then tell them to go back to their scriptures and look up the prophet Isaiah. That's what we're going to do. Here's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Let me just read it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, <clears throat> and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah here is writing about the time when God would come to rescue his people. Already, Isaiah has warned them that because of their sinful ways, God's people would be sent into exile, away from the land that God had given them, far away from him. But one day, God would bring them back. He had come in the form of a triumphant king who was also a suffering servant. And he had established a great new Jerusalem at the centre of the world. A new heaven and a new earth. It's an incredible vision. So when John says, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness, he is saying something about himself. He He is identifying himself in some way, but he's saying something far more incredible about the one that he is preparing for. In this one who was coming, every promise of rescue for God's people would be kept. John's saying, don't make a fuss about me. Don't look at me. I'm merely the welcoming party. You should look to the one that I'm preparing for. Sadly, some of the envoys, they just don't want to see things John's way. A group that was sent by the Pharisees. They were probably Pharisees themselves. Stubborn law keepers who saw themselves as righteous and anyone who did things differently as rotten sinners. We read in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptising if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophets? Their original question, John, who are you, has suddenly become really negative. Now they're saying, who are you to be baptising these people? It was their job to be calling the people to repentance. And here was John, just sidelining them and getting all the attention. He didn't have any satisfactory credentials. He wasn't the Christ. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't the prophet. What authority did John have to be doing these things? In verse 26, John replies to them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Well, John still won't give them a direct answer instead he wants to be clear with them that he's just the messenger he's preparing the people for someone far, far greater one whom John is not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal now these days we have lots of nice hygienic methods to keep our feet clean my wife Melissa likes to remind me about them all the time but in John's time There was no Watsons or local Guardian stores. There wasn't much decent soap or foot scrub going around. So men's feet usually smelt worse than a freshly opened durian. I don't like durian very much, by the way. So removing a man's sandals was a foul, humiliating task. It was reserved for the lowest of slaves. So for John to say there was someone in their midst, of whom he was not worthy even to untie his sandals. It's an incredible statement. John sets our expectations for someone who is really, really great. It's a bit like the way the John who wrote this gospel begins his gospel. Telling us about the word of God in verse 1. uh, The word by which God created all things. The word who was with God and was God. And then, we read later in verse 14, the word became flesh. He became a man by which God dwelt amongst us. Who is Jesus? He is God. Come to save us as the promised servant to the king. To rescue a people to himself and usher in God's new world to come. That he had promised through Isaiah. No one has ever had greater authority than Jesus. God made flesh. We'll take a closer look at the consequences for us a bit later. Now before John moves us on to the next scene. He gives us this little marker in verse 28. Just have a look at verse 28. He says. These things took place in Bethany. Across the Jordan where John was baptising. Now, there are two Bethanies mentioned in John's Gospel. Uh, you might be able to make out on the map over there. I've marked them actually both out. The Bethany in our verses that we're looking at this morning is associated with John's witness to Jesus, and that's the red box, which is on the right side of that blue line going up, which is the River Jordan. But then uh, Jesus will also come back to this Bethany in chapter 10 a bit later. But then Jesus will go to another Bethany, the Bethany which is the yellow box, further south in chapter 11. That's where Jesus raises Lazarus to life, with the result that the Jewish leaders make the plot to kill Jesus official. And from that point on, Jesus prepares his disciples for the hour of his death, before he faces his trial and the cross. Now, John doesn't want us to confuse these two Bethanies of his gospel. But I think he does want us to keep in mind what happens at the later Bethany as we see the negative reaction of the Pharisees to John the Baptist here. They wanted to silence John's witness to Jesus at this Bethany on the other side of the River Jordan. And they will decide to try and silence Jesus himself at the later one. Well, with that in mind, let's move on to the next scene under our second heading, John's reaction to Jesus. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptising with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So it's the following morning, and Jesus himself comes onto the scene. And as soon as John sees him, he tells the crowds, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when a Jew in John's day heard that word lamb, he didn't think of cute little fluffy animals. We may well think of lambs like that today. My mum thinks of lambs like that today. She finds them adorable. But to a Jew, a lamb meant sacrifice, a death that was cruel and undeserved. There's the Passover lamb that we read about back in Exodus chapter 12. Back in the Exodus, in order to be delivered from the final plague that God was sending upon Egypt, the Israelites had to take an unblemished lamb and kill it, one for each household. They had to eat it, and the blood of the lamb had to be painted on the doorposts and the frame of the front door of their houses. So that when God carried out his judgment on Egypt, Israel would be delivered. It's as if the lamb stands in place for the punishment that they would otherwise receive that lamb was the sacrifice that God provided for his people to deliver them from his judgment but later the prophet Isaiah picks up on this image of a lamb when speaking of that suffering servant of the Lord who bears the sins for many Isaiah 53 verse 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So John the Baptist is saying to those who are with him, you see that guy over there, you see Jesus, he's the lamb. He's the lamb that Isaiah spoke of. He's the one who bears the sins of his people for his people, who dies to bring life to his people. The rest of john's gospel builds up to the hour of the cross where jesus will lay down his life for others even though he never angered god even though he was faithful in every way he never sinned he never deserved the punishment of death and exile from god because he never sinned but he gave his life as a sacrifice to satisfy the full wrath of god against our sin John tells us crystal clear, Jesus takes away the sins of the world. It doesn't mean he automatically forgives everyone, no matter what our attitude to him. It means that he died for the world that had turned against him, and he died for all people without distinction. It's not that everyone will find life through the Lamb, but anyone can. Then John gives us this strange phrase in verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. We've seen those words before. We saw them last week in verse 14, where John is said to be a witness to the eternal word of God made flesh. So although Jesus came later than John in his humanity, because John was actually older than Jesus as a man... Jesus ranked way before John as the Word, verse 1, who was with God in the beginning. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal Lamb of God who came to take away our sins by giving his life in our place. Friends, have we recognised our need for him? Maybe we're tempted to look at the cross, at Jesus' death, uh, and say, well, yeah, that's very impressive. It's a great model of God's love for me. It's it's a a wonderful example of sacrifice. It's a strong sign that God is with me in my suffering. But that's as far as we will go. In terms of a personal investment in the cross we're not that interested. But God's word is very clear for us. It took the death of Jesus for our sins to be forgiven. We'll be remembering his death as we share the bread and the wine later. Please ensure, before you do that, that you have received Jesus as your saviour and your king. You have trusted in him as the lamb who takes away your sins because there's only one other way that sin can truly be dealt with and that is if we face the punishment for them ourselves as those who have rejected Jesus as our sacrificial lamb verse 32 and John bore witness I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him I myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Remember how the Pharisees asked John, what, what authority do you have to baptise these people? Well here we're told. Uh, John's ministry didn't begin because he just got up one morning and thought, mm, it's, it's a good day for baptisms. No, John tells us he was sent. You see that in verse 33? I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise. John was sent by God. His authority to do what he did came directly from God. Not only did he receive authority, he received instruction. John is unashamed to say verse 31, and here in verse 33, I myself did not know him. He knew the man Jesus... But he didn't know Jesus as God, coming into the world to be our saviour and our king. No, John could only recognise who Jesus really is, because he had help. A sign that God had prepared for him to see, as the one who was sent to prepare the way. We're told the spirit descended from heaven onto Jesus, like a dove. Now people have made a really big deal about this dove you go into a a Christian bookshop. I just did it the other week, went to Soufais, you go into a Christian bookstore, I promise you, you will find at least one poster, or one little statuette of Jesus, with a dove in the background. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. But if we simply focus on the Spirit descending like a dove, and that image of the dove, we will actually miss the main point of what John is telling us here, in his testimony. What's really significant is that the Spirit descends like a dove and remains on Jesus. That is what John wants to emphasise, the fact that the Spirit remains on Jesus. It's why he tells us it twice. The Spirit descends and remains on Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament there are individuals who receive God's Spirit for a particular task at a particular time. For a certain amount of time. Just one example, there's King Saul back in 1 Samuel 11. Uh, we, we read that the, uh, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and it gives him superhuman power to cut a pair of oxen in two. Something no ordinary man could do. But the Spirit is not said to remain with Saul or, or any other person in the Old Testament for that matter. But Jesus is different. The spirit remains on him. Which again fulfills the words of Isaiah. Look in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah says that God will send his servant on whom he shall put his spirit... And this servant won't just be a servant for God's people, Israel. No, this servant's work will be effective for the nations. For all peoples. And see what Isaiah says about this servant a bit later in the same chapter in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. The servant comes to give sight to the blind, to release those who are trapped in darkness. Now this servant that Isaiah speaks of would literally open the eyes of the blind. But that physical healing that he would perform would point to something far deeper. A spiritual healing. The servant would come to reverse the consequences of our sin. The Bible tells us that we are all guilty of rebelling against God. We decide to live life our way, rather than submit to his loving will as our creator. That is sin, friends, and sin cuts us off from God. It prevents us from experiencing relationship with him, the relationship we were created for. In our natural state, we are spiritually blind. We cannot know God. We cannot love him and serve him As we should. Because our hearts are sinful. We are turned against him. And instead we faced his just wrath at our sin. But Isaiah says that God would send his servant. One who would have the spirit upon him. Who would bring sight to the nations. Who would free us from the spiritual darkness we are in due to our sin. Who is Jesus? He is the spirit-filled servant of the Lord. The one who came that we might have life with God again. Jesus, as God, has the spirit on him continually. So he has the power to baptise others in the spirit. John could only baptise with water. But Jesus can do that internal transforming work of bringing us to new birth spiritually. Not just merely washing us off on the outside, but by the Spirit, Jesus works in our hearts. He opens our eyes to the reality of sin. He opens our eyes to who he is, that we might accept him, the one who paid the full price for our sins, in his own body, that we might be forgiven, have a new life with God in his name. This spiritual rescue was not just for Israel, as Isaiah reminds us. Jesus is the servant who came for the nations. Whether we're Chinese, Indian, British, Brazilian, whatever. If we want real spiritual life, we must look to Jesus. There is no exemption. We must receive him. Now last week, Andrew introduced us to a literary device called a chiasm where words are put in a certain order to emphasise the main point of a passage. And today, John's given us another literary device. It's called an inclusio. It's where the author puts similar statements at the beginning and the end of the section. Just have a look at verse 19. Let me just read it again. And this is the testimony of John. And now come and look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And witness there can be translated testify. I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. These opening and closing statements that are so similar, they tell us what the verses in between are really concerned with. In this case, it's John's testimony concerning Jesus. So that we might know him truly through John's eyes. And John concludes his testimony by declaring the greatness of Jesus. It's as if he's in court giving his final statement. He says, I bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. What would we say if we had to bear witness to who Jesus is? If we were asked to give that character reference for him. John has told us Jesus is the son of God who fulfills every one of God's promises to his world he is God come to save us as the promised servant king of Isaiah he is the eternal lamb who takes away our sins by bearing them in his own body on the cross he is the spirit filled servant of the Lord who can give us new spiritual birth that we might know God again Friends, if that is not your Jesus, then please look closely. Look to Jesus again in his word and receive him for who he is, lest you face him one day as the King and Saviour who you fail to acknowledge. But for those of us who have received him, keep on looking to Jesus. See how worthy he is of all our worship, of all our obedience. Of all our trust, our confidence, our praise. And secondly, be like John the Baptist. Bear witness to him. Ask God to help you point others to Jesus. To be far less concerned with ourselves and our own reputations like John here, and far more concerned with putting Jesus at the centre of our conversation. Our witness won't be the same as John the Baptist, of course. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. He could literally point people to Him. But for us, living this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can know and testify that Jesus is the Son of God, even though we have not seen Him. God has given us this testimony so that we could believe in Jesus though we have not seen him with our own eyes so that we might take it to others that they too might have life in his name let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you we praise you for Jesus whom you sent the servant king the lamb you gave for us who takes away our sins the one for whom we can now worship you in spirit and truth Will please continue to grow us in him help us to be faithful and bold witnesses to his glory By his name's sake we pray Amen